On today's episode, Pez Anserine Tendinopathy and Bursitis. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab, and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me undertrained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. Welcome back, Run Smarter Scholars. We have another episode talking about a specific condition that I haven't really talked about as a dedicated episode. Um, so looking forward to bringing you that. But before we do, let's welcome Sandy Thurston, who's a new patron this week. She's jumped into the honors tier. And I'd like to thank you for your support, Sandy. Last week, uh, for the patrons who are in the PhD tier or tenure tier, they received an exclusive episode of me reviewing a research paper. You might have caught it. I um, put out a bit of a teaser on social media talking about strength training and foam rolling. Uh, the paper itself combined the two interventions with a control group and um, found an 85% reduction in injury rates. And so um, went into the specifics with those, um, like I say, for those with a PhD tier or higher, uh, once a month they get a research review where I try and find recent research. This one came out this year and something that's quite practical and something that's quite um, different and is at least revolutionary from my sense. Like it's changed the way I think about foam rolling and well, just slowly shifting the tide of what I think about foam rolling. So thought it would be an interesting paper to discuss and I aim to try to have that same caliber of papers that I review each month and patrons do receive the paper they get access to that paper as well which is a nice added bonus for those science buffs out there um, I know when I post research reviews um, people some people ask for the the papers themselves or they ask about the specifics about the paper so you can go dive in look at the graphs and those sorts of things um Today, as you can tell by the title, we're talking about pes anserine tendinopathy and bursitis. The two are very closely linked, as you'll soon find out. Uh, I wanted to do this. I've been meaning to do this episode for a while now. I've had some runners reach out and say, hey, do you have an episode on this? Do you have an episode on that? And sometimes this pes anserine turns up and I say, no, I actually don't have a, an episode on it, which is crazy to think about at the moment with 300 episodes coming up, I can usually point most people in the right direction when they're asking for a topic, asking for questions and are you covering this? And yeah, I'm, uh, I don't like the feeling that I get when I say, sorry, I don't actually have an episode about that. So it's been on my list for a while now. I do have a very similar episode because I've actually had pes anserine tendinopathy years ago. And I did an episode about that, about my recovery. It was the Pez Anserine wasn't in the title though. It was um, 
how Brody overcomes six years of tendinopathy or something like that. Let me just search it. Um, just typed into the search bar. Okay, Brody's journey overcoming six years of tendinopathy <laughs> is the title. Um, it was a while ago, but essentially, as I started recording the podcast, it was like I think about a few months in of me actually starting the Run Smarter podcast, and this tendinopathy had been bugging me for a while, and I'm like, let me apply, really apply what I've learned here, and let's really overcome this stubborn tendinopathy. And I know a few of you have listened to that journey that I did in that episode, and you're like, well, Brody, like, why were you, why, how did you have a tendinopathy for six years, even though you're preaching all of this stuff? And my best answer, which I don't think I really conveyed on that episode, was, yes, I had it on and off for six years, but it didn't really bother me. Like, if someone was to talk to me off the street and be like, oh, how's your running going? Are you injured at the moment? I would have said no. I would have said, no, not injured, but... In reality, every now and then, this stubborn thing just kept, like, this wouldn't go away. It wouldn't stop my running, wouldn't hinder my running, which is sort of why I didn't take enough action. I was happy running, running races, doing triathlons, all that sort of stuff. Um, I was happy. It didn't hinder me at all. And it was very mild in terms of its symptoms. But sometimes you need to take these mild symptoms and be like, okay, it's time for me to actually address this. And so... I did a, um, I really scaled back, really peeled back all of my training, did some dedicated strength exercises for it, managed to overcome it. Safe to say that hasn't come back. Um, actually, I think I lie. I think maybe once in the last five years, I might've noticed a, a little resurgence. What did I do? There was something that happened in my training. I'm like, oh yeah, that would probably irritate it. And it ended up irritating it for a couple of days. But nonetheless, um, it's time now to do a dedicated episode to it so we can learn more about it, learn about the physiology, the pathophysiology, risk factors, differential diagnoses, and eventually some treatment, which is quite skimpy. I've tried looking through the research and there's not a lot on this. It is quite rare, I think, but yeah, just not a lot of work done on it. And so a lot of this episode will be my best attempts at interpreting the research, but also a bit of my own personal interpretation and my my own personal experience, because like I say, there's not a lot out there. There's not a lot of research. Um, so I don't have much to draw off. So let's start with what is this? What is this pezanserine area? What is this tendinopathy slash bursitis? Let me try to break down the anatomy as best I can. This is a pain on the inside of your knee. So if you are looking down at your knee, if you go to the inside, but also it's kind of um, behind the knee in a way as well, you might just have a feel of the inside of your knee and just sort of roll your fingers back towards um, the back of your knee. And you'll notice there's a whole bunch of tendons there. And it's sort of like where your hamstring attaches. Most people can follow the inside of their hamstring and just keep following it all the way to the inside of their knee where that connects. That's where the pezanserine resides. And it's actually consisting of three tendons from different muscle groups that all sort of converge together and have a common attachment onto the inside of the knee, inside of the, well, onto the tibia, and can be prone 
to irritation. So the the muscles that we the muscles that are combined are your semitendinosus, which is a part of it's essentially the hamstring, your gracilis muscle, which is a part, it's an adductor. So it runs all the way along the inside of your thigh. And also the sartorius, which is a bit of a weird one, starts on the outside of your hip. If you like, if you know where your quadricep muscle is, essentially cuts across the quadricep muscle. So it starts on the outside of the hip, all the way up on your hip bone. As it comes down towards the knee, it sort of starts on the outside, crosses all the way over the quad, and then it touches on the inside of the knee. So those three muscles all become tendon, and those three tendons kind of rope together, and they sort of have this really um, steep kind of attachment where they, what's a better word to describe that? They kind of um, bend as they attach. And so they sort of warp around this knee and have this common attachment point, which is um, quite unique. And so in there, because you have all these tendons, we don't like them flicking over one another. We don't like them having a lot of friction. There's a lot of things in there that reduces the amount of friction. One of those being the bursa. So you do have a pes anserine bursa that is just fluid filled and responsible for making sure there's not none of this irritation, especially as the tendons um, are very close in hugging the bone itself. We don't want the tendons irritating or the bone irritating the tendons as the tendons rub over it several thousand times when you go out for a run. So that's another component of the anatomy that we need to factor in or at least learn about. So the pathology of this, how it develops into pain. Um, I was looking into the research and some of them talk about a tendinopathy and some of them talk about a bursitis. Some of them talk about both of those things existing at once and they dub the term anserine syndrome. Um, maybe it's too hard to dissociate between the two because it's so, so, so common um, the presentation is so common or just maybe just because the pathology is having both structures sore is very common. Um, but I'd, I'd say the bursitis is quite acute. Like if you have a, typically when you have a bursitis and you have trauma to the bursa and then it becomes large, inflamed, sore, um, usually that's just treated with rest and it goes away relatively quickly, talking a couple of days if you avoid irritation. But as we know, tendinopathies can hang around. Mine hung around for six years, so I didn't see any inflammation. I didn't notice any bulging or any like, um, I guess it didn't look different compared to the other side. So I'd suggest there wasn't much swelling and it lasted for a very, very long time. So my presentation, I'm assuming it was more to do with the tendinopathy. Um, and looking into the research, it seems like for the most part, a tendinopathy, if it, a tendinopathy would be more for your athletes, for your long distance runners, that overuse type of stuff. The bursa, if it turns into a bursitis, yes, it can be for athletes, but the research te- also suggests that it could be in the sedentary population as well those who are overweight, those who are putting a lot of stress on the inside of their knee based on how they walk and that sort of stuff. Um, so that's the difference between the two. But for the 
sake of this episode, we're probably just going to use the overuse part of it. Or it could also be trauma-based. I should say that as well. Like if you are playing a team sport and you get a knee knock and someone knocks their knee on the inside of your knee, or if you're playing hockey and you get a stick that sort of smacks the inside of your knee, if that directly, if there's direct trauma to the bursa, that can become quite inflamed and it can get quite sore. Um, It actually like there's significant localized swelling, kind of like the golf ball underneath the skin sort of appearance that would be a clear sign that the bursa has become inflamed. And I did find a paper that um, had the the quote, pes anserine bursitis is believed to result from overuse friction to to the bursa due to excessive valgus or rotatory stresses to the knee or by direct contusion, so direct trauma. So looking at the pathology, there seems to, well, this paper itself seems to think that there is some sort of valgus strain to the knee. And when I talk about valgus, if you were to stand on one leg, if your knee kind of caves inwards, you could say, that creates a valgus angle. And if some people run with an excessive valgus angle and can also rotate the tibia, can also rotate the femur. And if there are those rotary stresses to the knee, it can tend to um, cause irritation to the bursa. And I would say probably the tendons as well, if you if it's sort of chronic overuse. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Okay, so we've got the anatomy, we've got the pathophysiology of how this sort of manifests. Let's look at, if you do have it, what the clinical presentation might be. An obvious one would just be pain, pain that's localized to the inside of the knee. Some papers refer to burning as well. If you are lying there at night and there's a throb and there's an ache and there's a burn, um, that could be a sign that you have this condition. Tenderness on palpation or just sore to touch would be also another clinical presentation. It's aggravated by things like stairs. That seems to be probably the most common repeatable thing that pops up in these studies. I found about, let me go back to my downloads. I found five papers on this, whether it was tendinopathy or bursa, and most of them talk about pain going up and down stairs as a pretty clinical factor. Um, If it's really irritated, maybe just bending the knee, bending and straightening the knee could elicit some pain. Going from a seated position to a standing position could elicit pain. Um, But I would suggest that um, ruling out some things as well. Like if you have pain on the inside of the knee, we'll talk about differential diagnoses in a second. But if you've got pain localized, tender, inside of the knee, and we rule out a bunch of things, maybe it's starting to increase the likelihood of this type of stuff. One study, the title was Pes anserine bursitis, incidents in symptomatic knees and clinical presentation. 
they sort of gathered um, 24 patients who had um, suspected or reported that they had um, a pezanserine bursitis and they then did some imaging and reclassified them and saw, they found that three knees were reclassified as being a popliteal cyst, which is more to do with directly behind the knee. Seven people actually had a semi-membranosus bursa, which is the bursa of your hamstring, and one had a paramensical cyst. I don't know what that is, but uh, the prevalence of actually having a true pes anserine bursitis in this study was 2.5%, so 13 knees. And um, so you can imagine that like a true bursitis might be quite rare when people present with just medial knee pain. Don't just listen to this episode and just think, oh my God, this is me. Um, we used to think that all the time when it came to doing, when we we're at uni, listening to lectures and talking talk about conditions and diseases and syndromes, be like, oh my God, that's me for almost every single lecture. Um, so just bear in mind that it's not that common and um, it could be something else. Like I say, we'll talk about differential stuff in a second. Um, back to this paper, they said um, they the review of the case notes indicated that the common, the most common symptom the patients presented was pain on the medial and posteromedial side of the knee, talking about the inside and also inside behind of the knee. On running or ascending, descending stairs, that seemed to be the most common link of symptoms. And they said the, the most common suspected clinical diagnosis was actually a medial meniscal tear. So those who actually had a pezanserine bursa, bursitis, um, most of them actually thought they had a meniscal tear. So there was a whole list of differential diagnoses. We'll talk about, okay, so the medial meniscus was a differential diagnosis. You could have a medial meniscus instead of this or vice versa. So this is why getting it medically assessed is really important. So the meniscus is just um, the shock absorbers inside the knee. You have a lateral meniscus, you have a medial meniscus, and if there's some damage to, or if the medial meniscus is producing some painful signs, it's usually the inside of the knee, usually along the medial border of the knee. And so that could be the case. Um, other differential diagnoses would be referring from the back. You could have um, an L4, L5 radiculopathy, which is just radiating pain from a certain section of the back that sort of that's where the referral pattern goes to. Um, you can have a medial collateral ligament injury. So very, very close in proximity to where the, the pezanserine is. You also have a collateral ligament, which helps support the inside of the knee. Um, this will be very, I think the mechanism of injury can help differentiate the two. So if you were to have a ligament injury, that's usually trauma-based, but not like direct trauma, like if you were to get a hockey stick, slap you right where that tendon is or where that ligament is. It's more of like a, a tackle or a twist or a fall where you would create trauma. Uh, someone might tackle you from the other side, so from the outside of the knee coming in, and that causes uh, a big stress on the inside of the knee 
and that's where you get ligament injuries. So just um, trying to work out when this pain came about, what was the mechanism of injury could maybe help differentiate this. Some other differential diagnoses would be the suprapatellar bursitis and the prepatellar bursitis. So you have a whole bunch of bursa around the knee. It could just be a bursitis of something else. Patellofemoral syndrome, which is pain around the kneecap. So you can get pain around the inside of the kneecap, but this pezantarine issue would be further to the inside of the knee, away from the border of the patella, but can sometimes get confused. Uh, they said patella chondromyelitia, which is just an irritation of the cartilage underneath the kneecap. Um, what else? Recurring patella subluxations, okay, and also direct trauma. So you can have direct trauma and not have, it can just be irritated. Um, you can just get bruising in that area from direct trauma. It doesn't have to be the bursa is irritated. Obviously, if you have, if you get a hockey stick to the inside of the knee, I don't know why I keep saying hockey stick, but if you keep getting a hockey stick um, hit on the inside of the knee, things are going to be sore. Things are going to get bruised, but doesn't have to be um, condition specific or affect one particular type of area. Okay, based on the research, what are the risk factors? Some of these papers are referring to the sedentary population. So they did say that if you're overweight, you have a is it seems to be a risk factor. Um, I don't think a lot of us run smarter scholars are overweight, but um, in the sedentary population, maybe that is the case. A malalignment of the knee, in particular the valgus knee. So like I said before, if you're standing on one leg and your knee is caving in a little bit, it's creating like an L shape. That's how I sort of remembered it because you have valgus and you have varus. Um, the varus would be like your cowboy kind of stance where the knees are bending outwards. Valgus would be with knees caving inwards. And you can just imagine if your knee is caving inwards, it's putting a bit more stress and strain to that area. Um, I did find a study and the title was Risk Factors for Pezanserine Tendinitis Slash Bursitis Syndrome, a Case Control Study. And in that paper, they found, they said there was no difference in prevalence when linking diabetes, knee osteoarthritis, obesity, knee instability, varus knee deformity, and hind foot malalignment in between in these cases compared to controls. So all of those things weren't in association with this condition, but they continue and say the, um, the presence of valgus knee deformity alone or in combination with collateral instability was identified as associating of being associated with pezanserine tendonitis slash bursitis syndrome. So I guess it's starting to appear in multiple papers if you have uh, instability that's sort of drawing the knee inwards, then maybe this is leaving you more at risk. I want to put in my piece here, um, something that might be a case because I don't have a knee valgus um, and, you know, I seemed to develop this. But I did have, at the time, a pretty aggressive um, crossover step width. And so... I've done episodes on this before, but just to uh, a little refresher, your step width refers to if you're viewing a runner from behind and observing where their foot is landing in relation to the midline. And most people 
have a wider step width where your right foot makes contact, makes contact just to the right-hand side of the midline, but you can also have a narrow step width, which is directly in the middle, in the midline, or crossing over, so a crossover step width. The crossover step width was me for a very long time, and um, you can imagine if you're crossing over and trying to... The, the direction of the force is putting a bit more strain on the inside of the knee. Could imagine that. Um, and also, if it's any, if it's of any importance, like when I was recovering from this, I made the decision to widen my step width. So I went from a crossover step width to more of a, a natural sort of step width. And I noticed that I could run with less pain and run further symptom-free. So there seems to be a direct correlation there. And I've just since then adopted a wider step width. This has been the condition five, six years ago that actually made me change how I run and I still run that way to this day. So um, yeah, I, I managed to find a correlation there for me, um, but something for you to bear in mind. I also query whether downhill running might strain this area a little bit more. I am thinking about the hamstrings. And when we're talking about this particular area, we're talking about the hamstrings needing to work at the end range of movement, work pretty firmly at the end of range. And we'll talk about that in treatment in a second. But I could just imagine if you're shuffling downhill, you've got a slight knee bend, you're attracting quite a large amount of force because you're thudding your way downhill. And we know that during downhill running, you know, ground reaction forces are amplified just because you have to go against gravity. The angle itself, like some people, when they run downhill, they have a little bit more of a narrow step width. So the combination of the ground reaction forces amplified, the angle of your foot as it makes contact with the ground, that being like, it's a little bit more underneath your body. It's, the knee's a little bit more bent. And then just knowing what the hamstrings need to do if you are shuffling your way downhill, I would say would be a combination to strain that area more so than it would in any other time. So if you running downhill is fine, but if you have an abrupt change to running downhill, then maybe you're at a slightly more risk of straining this particular area of the body. Just my theory, um, take it or leave it, but that's me just trying to draw conclusions off the anatomy and physiology and how the body works. Okay, treatment. So the research wasn't that helpful. <laughs> treatment said pretty much initial rest. You want to take the rest, especially if you're if it is the bursa. We treat them differently to what we would tendons. So we do want the bursa to calm down if it's inflamed and irritated Rest will do that. Ice will do that. Just avoiding aggravating it in certain ways, avoiding stairs, avoiding running, avoiding whatever might aggravate it. But also if it is the bursa um, and it is persistent, it is painful, it's hanging around for several weeks and you can't manage the symptoms, it is quite effective to get a corticosteroid injected into that bursa. Now, people get a bit nervous when they talk about corticosteroids because they think it's going to um, affect the tendons because we know that it does have a detrimental effect in the long term for tendons. But if you have an ultrasound-guided 
corticosteroid injection into the bursa. They are visually looking at the needle going in. They're visually looking at the needle piercing the bursa and then looking at uh, injecting that, that steroid. And that could be really effective at calming, calming down inflammation because it's a steroid. It's an anti-inflammatory agent and that can help really settle down things. So just bear that in mind that can be done um, and can be extremely effective. But I want to spend a bit more time talking about if it's a tendinopathy, like what I had. Um, I don't think the bursa was involved much at all. And so I want to approach it like I would any other tendon. So let's talk about strength exercises. And I did try to communicate this on my other episode talking about my recovery. Don't know if I did a great job. Don't know if I'll do a great job now, but let just bear with me. So we're looking at strengthening and we've got three tendons in that area. I mainly want to strengthen the hamstring component and the adductor component. We don't really care about that sartorius muscle. It's it's not playing a primary role in a lot of these things, but you can activate your adductors and hamstrings pretty strongly when it comes to these sort of um, when it comes to rehab exercises. So a typical hamstring curl, so when you lie on your stomach, put some weights onto your heel and then you curl towards your hips, towards your butt, that would work your hamstrings. But if we were to try and bias the distal part of your hamstring, so the hamstring that's like approaching the attachments towards the knee, you kind of want to stimulate the area at end of range, end of motion or however you want to phrase it. So I'm talking about the, if you were to curl, it's kind of closer to when your legs are straight. When your legs are, when there's a very, very slight knee bend, that's close to end of range. And we want to sort of work the hamstring in that range. So if we're biasing this pezanserine area, we want to try and find the sets, reps, and weights that really suit. But it would be more effective to this area if we were to just slowly curl so that there's about you know 10, 15 degrees of bend and then slowly back down to maybe not straight if that causes pain, but maybe go to five degrees of bend. So you go from five to 15 to five to 15 degrees of bend and do that really slowly, do that through like five to eight reps, see how that feels, and then do the other side for comparison because you always do both sides when you rehab. And so that could be one thing that you can do provided that symptoms allow. And um, that's how we're sort of biasing these sort of things. You do have your adductors. So like we say, the gracilis muscle is the one of the adductors that is involved in this pezanserine region. Um, your gracilis works when your leg is more straight. So you can work hip, uh, you can work your adductors when your knees are bent. So if you are lying on your back, you're bending your knees and you're sort of squeezing um, your knees together, you're working your adductors. But if your legs are straight and you're squeezing your knees together, you're sort of shifting how some of these adductors are working. So we, we sort of want to gear more towards the straight leg adductor exercises. So it could be as simple as lying flat on your back, 
legs are straight, you've got a basketball between your ankles and you're squeezing your ankles together trying to squash that basketball. That could be something you could do. Uh, what I ended up doing, sort of towards my end range of movement, uh, my end stage rehab was doing more Copenhagen planks. So if you are familiar with Copenhagen's, if you're not familiar with Copenhagen's, it's essentially like a side plank, but my top leg is up on a bench and my bottom leg is um, squeezing underneath the bench. So I'm sort of sandwiching the bench between my ankles and entering that side plank. And so as a result, your top leg is really working the adductors. I think I found that if I slightly bent my knees doing that exercise, I could elicit a little bit of that pezanserine pain, which I ended up striving for because usually when I have a tendinopathy, I like to elicit a little bit of pain during because I then had this analgesic effect. And after the first set, pain would go away. I'd do the same thing for the second set and the third set and the pain wouldn't be there. So I was actively looking for a little bit of pain because it would, I would know I'd be triggering the right area. I did the same with, as a pre-activation exercise or as an analgesic exercise before my running, I would do a, a tendon sort of warm-up routine where if you're familiar with like a reverse plank where you're sort of, um, most people are familiar with a plank, but this time you're facing the ceiling. So your elbows are on the ground, your body's nice and straight like a plank and um, yeah, your chest is upwards. If you can imagine that, then imagine you're going onto a single leg. So you're doing a single leg reverse plank, you could say, and then you are just curling your leg back and forth, just like by about 10 degrees. So I'm just bending my leg and stretching it out. And as I'm doing that, I'm digging my heel into the ground. So it's almost like I found a way just by, you know, tweaking my body and just trial and error. I found a way to almost without any equipment, elicit that end of range hamstring curl that I was doing before. And I realized, you know, that would be like a two out of 10 pain when I first did it. The second set was like a one out of 10 pain. The third set was totally pain-free and then I'd go for a run. And I found that worked pretty well for me. Um, not as a good rehab exercise, but as a analgesic effect before running. And I found I was a bit more successful if I did that before a run. If I did that after a run, I was managing my runs better and it was fine the next day. So I was following those same rehab rules, the guidelines that we have in the first 10 episodes of the podcast. Um, and I was just really diligent with it and you can do the same, but just follow the same principles. We need to get the hamstring strong, particularly that end of range. And we want to get the adductors really strong, uh, particularly, pl- uh, kind of moving towards the legs being more straight with your adductors. Another exercise you could do is you're just standing. You've got um, a resistance band that you're resisting as you pull in. So hip adduction with a band, you can do that. Um, Just keeping the legs straight and you might try and find, I actually tried to do that. I actually remember doing that. I think it was effective, probably not as effective as Copenhagen's. Um, and found that did elicit some sort of pain, especially if I rotated my leg in a certain direction. But um, 
yeah, particularly if it's like a level one, like an early stage sort of exercise, you might want to try that one as well. But that's just the rehab treatment on the strength and conditioning side of things. You can also, while we also need to be very mindful about your running and modifying your running to make sure that we're okay. I modified my running by changing my step width and I found that was very successful, but that might not necessarily be for you. Your step width might be fine. You might not need to change it. Um, But this is a repetition injury. Like we said in the early, earlier in the episode, when it came to the um, pathology of this, we're looking at overuse. We're looking at friction. We're looking at like this repetitive trauma to the area. So um, an overuse injury, we could say. So we need to be very mindful of your distance. We need to be very mindful um, when you're returning back that we're monitoring how many minutes you're running. Do you need to do some run walking and sort of limit that one repetition um, and avoiding that irritation by having the same repetition over and over again? And then... Being mindful of the hills, how am I doing much downhill running? Can I just walk the downhills? Um, should I run uphill? Like maybe maybe uphill running allows you to still maintain your fitness without irritating the area. Similar to how I widened my step width and I found I could be more successful, run further for longer. My pain-free running was further. Um, you might be able to do that with uphill running and just walk the downhills and see if that's successful for you. But we want to make sure that we're following our same uh, pain principles during the run. Less than a three out of 10 is probably a, a safe space to be, safe guidelines. Afterwards, we don't want much irritation. We want to return back to baseline in 24 hours, definitely 24 hours. 12 hours is probably better. Um, if it's more than a two out of 10 during the run, or if it's taking longer than 24 hours to return back to baseline after that run, it means that you're doing too much. You need to modify. But if you are passing those things, if you're passing the pain during and the pain afterwards and things are going well, keep in mind the third rule, which is symptoms need to improve week by week because some people can have those first two rules and pass those and say, good, I know that my distance, my speed, and all those variables are within this adaptation sweet spot, but they're just not getting better. It's just week by week by week of it still being a one or a two out of 10 the entire time. We need to see improvements week by week to know that you're effectively managing this rehab. So that's all I have. Um, I guess when it comes to prevention, uh, yeah, just make sure you're not doing any abrupt changes. <laughs> if you do have a, a little valgus angle when you run, I wouldn't be too worried. If you wanted to widen your step width, if you do have a crossover step width, that's decisions up to you. Um, but in terms of prevention and that sort of stuff, just be very mindful of hills, be very mindful of downhills and doing nothing that's like an abrupt change. So hopefully this has helped your understanding. Sorry that there's not much more research out there um, just because this condition isn't that common therefore there's not a lot of interest in it there's not a lot of funds towards it Um, but try my best I hope this helps your understanding and helps your running in the future so 
As I sign off, remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20-minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk, and increase your performance. If emails aren't for you, consider my Facebook group, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And remember, each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough.